One of the things that marks out the letter of Paul to the churches in Galatia that we've been reading and studying this summer, uh, that marks it out from other letters is that there's so much autobiographical information in it. And that should compel us to read it with great eagerness because Paul is one of the most important men of history. And what he did affects every one of us today. My guess, however, is that only some of us know how indebted we are to him. And so I hope that today, after what I share with you, I'm hoping that two things will happen. First, I'm hoping that all of us will come to appreciate him and what he did for Christ and therefore what he did for us. And secondly, that we will be inspired to follow in his footsteps. Let's pray one more time and let's ask for God's blessing now upon this word. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to be together, this uh, opportunity to learn, and we pray for your spirit to work and that it would be life-changing for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. Years ago, I heard a speaker who was a very good speaker and a very gifted leader. He had a profound influence upon my life. He was exhorting a group of pastors He was challenging us, and his goal in his message was to inspire us to be men of courage, to inspire us to be men of faith, and then he made a mistake. He said, I have never been discouraged. And the rest of us sat there and thought, whoa, we can't measure up to that. I remember... Uh, another leader, a very prominent leader in the same movement of churches, and he said, you know, when I heard him say that, I thought, what am I supposed to do with that? Because I am a leader, and I have been discouraged. I get discouraged, and I couldn't relate to him at all. And that was exactly my thought on that. The Apostle Paul is not that way at all. In his letters, he opens up about his life. In one place, he said, look, I've got conflicts all around me. And I have fears within me. In another place, Paul said, Guys, when I was with you, I was with you in weakness. I was with you in fear. I was so afraid that I was actually shaking. And so Paul, in his letters, he he sprinkles these little comments, these little anecdotes throughout his letter. But here in Galatians, the book of Galatians, we get like a, a healthy meal of his life before he came to Christ and after he came to Christ. And so today, as we look at this passage in Galatians, I want to share with you three things. I want to share with you the early history of Paul, the humility of Paul, and the heroic stand that Paul took that affects us so profoundly today. So in your blue Bible, you can turn to page 972, and you can follow along as I point out some of the key phrases in this. But what I want to do today is actually, even though our text is Galatians chapter 2, we're going to dip back into chapter 1 a little bit. And I'm going to uh, talk to you about Paul's life before he came to Christ and then after he came to Christ. And I want to talk about the early church and the years of the early church. I want to compare it to driving a car with a stick shift. Do any, have any of you today never driven a car with a stick shift? Can I see your hand if you've never done that? 
a few of you, just a few, and the rest of you have. Okay, good. So most of you, Dave, I'll teach you later, okay? All right. <laughs> I didn't learn until I was 20. So anyway, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad I learned. So let's compare to this. When the disciples were commissioned by Jesus to go back to Jerusalem and to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit, they were driving the car, so to speak. And that was like being in first gear. They were praying. They were obeying. They were waiting for the gift of the Spirit. And then the day of Pentecost comes. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon His disciples. And they go from first gear to second gear really fast. And amazing things happen. But then, about a year later, persecution sets in. There are so many people who are coming to Christ that the authorities cannot allow it, and they begin hauling the Christians into court. They begin killing some of them, and the Christians scatter throughout the world. But as they scatter throughout the world, they don't do it in fear. They do it and they, with, with courage, and they spread the gospel, and they tell this amazing good news to all of these good communities. And so now the gospel is not contained just within Jerusalem or just within the province of Judea. Now the gospel has gone all throughout Israel, and it's starting to spread all throughout the Mediterranean world. The church is now in third gear. And then Paul, Saul of Tarsus as he was called, he gets saved. The Lord appears to him. And as he grows in his faith, the gospel begins to expand even further and it goes out to Gentiles in a new and fresh way. And now the church is in fourth gear and really humming along. And then some people come along and they want to downshift back to second gear. Can, can you imagine driving along 65, 70 miles an hour and somebody actually hits the, 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 uh, the gear shift thingamajig, whatever you call it, <laughs> the six shift, and they actually bump it down into second gear? You can hear that clutch just really, really working. And that's what is happening in this chapter. They were telling Paul, you've got it wrong, and you have to downshift. And so when we look at the text in Galatians chapter 2, we have to understand it in that way. And, and unless we know the history, unless we know what it was that was bothering these people, unless we know the history that they had, that they were clinging to, the traditions that they were clinging to so tightly, We'll just breeze right past it. Or we'll look at the text and we'll, we'll look at verses 4 and 5 and we'll say, circumcision? What's the big deal about that? I mean, that's just a, a medical procedure. Why, why are they making such a big deal about circumcision? And how does that relate to me today? Or we could go back to chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14. If you'll look at that just for a moment there, where Paul says he was advancing in, in Judaism beyond many of his own age, and he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his father, we may think, well, that's good. He was, he was the top student in his class. He was, he was valedictorian. But, but why, why did he have to persecute the church so violently? Why did, why did he try to destroy the church. Why didn't he just say, okay, you know, that's your opinion, this is my opinion, and we'll all just get along? 
Why was Paul attacking these people, hauling them into prison, and when they would go to court, he would vote down and have them to be executed? What was causing that to happen? So let me give you a little bit of history that will help to explain what was going on and why feelings were so raw at this time. For hundreds of years, the people of God had been dominated. The Jewish people, the chosen people of God, had been dominated by foreign powers. First it was the Babylonians, and then it was the Persians, and then it was the Greeks. And when the Greeks dominated them, they gave them a little bit of autonomy, a little bit of of freedom. But what the Greeks really wanted to do was for everybody to become Greek. Not, Not ethnically, but they wanted everybody to embrace their culture, their language, their customs, their practices. They thought that their culture was the top culture in the world and they wanted everybody to be part of this. But the Jewish people stood firmly against it. No, we can't do everything you're telling us to do. And for a while, there was kind of an uneasy alliance between this imposition of Greek culture and and the Jewish people holding on to their own beliefs and their own culture. But then there came a day when a man had uh, gained authority, and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was quite a guy. You see it from his name. The word Epiphanes, here's a picture of him right here. The word Epiphanes means God manifest. Can you imagine strutting around saying, My name is Antiochus, God manifest. My name is Jonathan, God manifest. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's the reaction you have today, but you didn't have that reaction back then. You kind of kowtowed to him and and you let him just let him go on with his fantasy. And so Antiochus, he wants to do more. He wants not just to suggest that the Jewish people think about embracing his culture. He is going to force them to it or else. And so he goes into Jerusalem in a very bad mood. And there's reasons why he was in a very bad mood. But he goes into Jerusalem and he says, from this point on, you can no longer read the Torah. You can no longer read your Bible. From this point on, you can no longer circumcise your little boys on the eighth day. Now, for the Jewish people, that was gigantic because circumcision was the sign by which people came into the family of God, by which they came into the covenant of God. And Antiochus said, no more. You're all going to be uncircumcised like us Greeks. He says, you cannot worship on the Sabbath, And then, to top it all off, he took a pig into the Jewish temple and he sacrificed the pig upon the altar, set up an image of Zeus, and said, here is your God. Well, the Jewish people, they weren't going to stand for that. And so they rebelled and they went to war against Antiochus. And it lasted three and a half years and finally they overthrew the Greek rule and The people of God were free, from not just from this influence, but now they had authority, they had autonomy in their land. Well, the Jewish people who who for hundreds of years were engaged in idolatry and immorality, they now were holding on to the law of Moses. 
but they made a big mistake. They went too far in this way. And they begin to take the law of Moses and with a good heart at the beginning, they tried to make it applicable to everyday life that people were living in the times in which they live. But the problem is, is that if this represents the law of Moses, their applications would be this high. And they began to hold on to their applications and their traditions and give them equal authority with the words of Moses in the Old Testament. And so this went on for about 170 years. And the traditions get deeper and higher and wider and broader. And the burden to follow all of these rules and regulations became heavier and heavier and heavier upon the people. But some of the people, like Paul, like the Pharisees, they studied every one of these things and they were applying every one of these things. And they were trying to impose all of these traditions upon the people and in that environment, a man comes along whose name was Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, and he doesn't do things the way that they say they should be done. He heals people on the Sabbath. You can't heal people on the Sabbath. That's working. And then on another occasion, Jesus' disciples forget to wash their hands before a meal. They're, they're just so busy, and the meal is there, and they're starving, and then they just start eating, and, and the, the, the Pharisees look at this, and they say, wait a minute, you can't eat a meal without first washing your hands? And they're not thinking of hygiene, they're thinking of the traditions, and they're thinking of being pure before God. And then on another occasion, Jesus and his disciples, are, they're walking through the, the grain fields, and I guess the disciples were always hungry. So, so they, they reach out their hands and they snap off a few ripe grains and they just start munching on it. And some Pharisees are walking with them. And they said, what are you doing? This is the Sabbath. You can't, you can't do that. And they, and they say, well, why not? I'm, I just broke off a, a few little pieces and I'm just munching on some food. You can't do that because that is reaping the harvest you got to be kidding me. This is reaping the harvest? Yes. All kinds of things like that took place in the life of Jesus where he wasn't breaking the law, but he was breaking the traditions of the elders that had been added on top of the law. And you know what happened? For that and for many other reasons, they killed him. They crucified him. But then three days later, he rose from the dead. And he got his disciples back together, and he commissioned them, and he said, look, now the next step is for you to go into all the world, go to Jerusalem, and wait. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit upon you, and you're going to go into second gear. He actually, it actually says that in the Greek. Just kidding, it doesn't say that in the Greek, but just to get back to the metaphor. And so go to Jerusalem and wait and I'll send my Holy Spirit upon you, and you will be empowered. And so they do that, and the Spirit of God comes, and they begin witnessing, and, and thousands of people are coming to Christ, and the movement is spreading, and Paul, who is a Pharisee, 
And not just a Pharisee, there were two factions of the Pharisee. There was kind of a liberal wing, and there was an ultra, hard, right, conservative wing. And guess which wing Paul was in? The ultra, hard, right. He was extremely zealous, as he says. And so Paul is watching this movement, and what Paul is thinking is this. These people are compromisers. These people are just like the weak need, weak-willed Jewish people in the time of Antiochus who would not stand up to Antiochus Epiphanes. And they are going to bring destruction and corruption to our people and to our land. We have to do something about it. And Paul made the decision that he was going to turn violent against the followers of Jesus because he believed that they were corrupting the nation of Israel. And so that's why Paul says in chapter 1 here, you've heard of my former manner of life, how I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. He's not just talking about scholarship. I was the number one bounty hunter, he's saying here. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers, and I was not going to let anyone corrupt it. And So he's on his way to Damascus. He's not content just to do it in Jerusalem, just in the little province or state of Judea. He's on his way to another city, with letters, and he's going to start spreading his mission to kill Christians in Damascus. And we know what happens. There he meets Jesus. He's knocked down onto the ground. <clears throat> he's humbled, this bright light shining around him. And a voice starts speaking to him. Paul, Paul, why are you doing this? Why are you persecuting me? Persecuting you? Who are you? And then the words that had to shake him to the core. Three words. I am Jesus. Boom. Can you imagine how Paul felt? Everything he had lived for all of his life, everything he had sacrificed for all of his life was wrong. It was a sham. And Jesus was right. And all of those people that he had killed, they were right. And so Paul tells us in chapter 1, he says, listen, after the Lord revealed himself to me he said and, and then right after that he went on into Damascus and he was baptized and he, he committed his life to Jesus as the Messiah and then right after that Paul says that he went away into Arabia there's actually a little a little map we have up here when we when we think of Arabia today when we hear that word we think of Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia Arabia is about right here on the map okay but that's not what he's talking about He's talking about, you see up here, it says the Syrian desert and the eastern desert. He went somewhere over in the eastern part. Some people say he may have gone down to Mount Sinai. We can't say that for sure. But somewhere over to the east of Israel is where he went for a little while in his life. 
And while Paul is there in Arabia, he has a lot of thinking to do because his life has been totally changed. He has the scriptures with him. He begins to read the scriptures, looking at them with new eyes. He has to think about what he has done and ask forgiveness for all of the, the persecution he brought upon the people of God. And he has to think about the rest of his life. Paul has a lot that is on his mind while he is in this part of Arabia. And during that time, probably Jesus appeared to him again and instructed him again. And then after he spends some time in Arabia, he goes back to Damascus. And when he goes into the synagogue, he begins preaching. But he preaches, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised one. And then Paul experiences something that he thought he would never experience. Does anybody want to guess what it was? It's persecution. Now, it comes back to him. Now, he has to experience what he inflicted upon so many other people. And so Paul is persecuted, and his life is threatened, and he has to escape in the dark. And he goes down to Jerusalem, and he meets with, with Peter and some of the others for a little while. He's with them for, for two weeks. And while he's there, guess what happens to him in Jerusalem? His life is threatened again. And so Barnabas takes Paul, he moves him back up into, see up at the very top left corner, the Taurus Mountains where it says Cilicia. That's where Paul was born and raised. Paul, he sends Paul back to his hometown, and Paul spends time there, and he continues to grow, and he continues to develop in this area. And while he is doing that, he comes to this conviction founded upon the Word of God and this would be the revolutionary breakthrough that comes from Paul. And it's this. Gentiles, very simple for us. For them, it was earth-shattering. Gentiles do not have to become Jews to be in the family of God. Gentiles who are uncircumcised do not have to go through the rite of circumcision to be full members in the family of God. And men, aren't you glad? I guess you're glad. <clears throat> we get to be in the family of God completely, 100% on the basis of who Jesus is. And what he has done for us. And that's the good news that we share with every person who walks through these doors. That you can come into the family of God no matter who you are, no matter where you are from, no matter what you have done. You can come into the family of God and you are full members in the family of God because of what Jesus has done for every one of you. And that is really, really good news. And so Paul comes to this discovery. Jesus had already talked about it. Remember the parable when Jesus said, you can't put new wine into old wineskins because then the old wineskins will, will burst. And uh, for those who don't know about how those things work, 
when you put the wine into a wineskin, that the gases in the wine cause the wineskins to stretch. And so you can do it one time, and I don't know, maybe a couple of times, but if you keep putting new wine into the same wineskin, eventually the wineskins will keep expanding more and more and more, and eventually they will burst. And so Jesus says you have to put new wine into new wineskins. And what he was saying there is that the structures that were necessary for the people of God for so many centuries, for so many years, those structures were good and were tipped, but they were only temporary. Now is coming a time for a new structure for the new wine of the kingdom of God to be poured in. Think of Think of, um, think of a, the, uh, the space shuttle uh, attached to a rocket and, and taking off. And we, we see it there on the launching pad, and there's a, there's a structure around that rocket. There's the, the scaffolding that holds it in place. And then when the rocket begins to take off, the scaffolding falls away. And then the rocket goes up. It seems like it's defying gravity. It's just going up so slowly, but it gains speed. But then one of the booster rockets uh, explodes in a good way. One of the, the, the booster rockets it ignites, and then it goes even faster. But that booster rocket falls away. And then it goes up higher. And we've all seen pictures. That they're beautiful pictures of the earth in the background. And here is this rocket ship going, going off. And then another booster rocket fires. And, and it falls away back toward the earth. What was happening in Galatians at this time is that people were wanting the scaffolding and the booster rockets to stay attached to the spaceship. And Paul says, and as we know, that can't happen. If you want that ship to go into orbit, you've got to get rid of those structures so that it can do what it was designed to do. And so people were coming to Paul and uh, trying to get him to do certain things, and Paul refused to do that. Well, that's the history of it. Now I want to give you a word of encouragement. That was the first part of three parts. My word of encouragement is this. Parts two and three don't take nearly as long to talk about as part one. Okay? Just, just thought I'd throw that in there for you. The second part is this. The humility of Paul. And so if we look at chapter two, beginning in verse one, Paul said, then after 14 years, and actually this was 17 years after he had come to Christ, because he was first, he mentions three years, and then now 14 years. He says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and, I, and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. This is a great man. This is a humble man. Paul by this time, had had a good 15 years of ministry experience under his belt. Paul had, by this time, been a prominent leader 
in one of the most famous churches in the early history of Christendom. He was a leader in the church of Antioch, named after Antiochus Epiphanes. There, it just kind of occurred to me, there's some real irony there. Take this, Antiochus, you know, poke him in the eye. Here we are worshiping God in the city where you said you were God. And so Paul is a leader in that church. Paul has these amazing credentials, and it's possible that he had by this time when he makes his trip to Jerusalem some scholars believe that he had already had his first missionary journey where God used him to do miracles and people are coming to Christ this is the now he is the premier Christian in the world before he was the premier Jewish person now he is the premier Jewish Christian in the world and yet when he comes to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James and John he says, guys, let me, let me share with you what I am proclaiming all over the world. I just want to do a double check here. And I want to make sure that what I am saying, that Gentiles are full members in the family of God. I want to make sure that what I'm saying is the truth. And that shows a lot of humility. Throughout church history, it, it has been so easy for so many people not to be humble. It has been so easy for so many people to be proud and to say, well, I have this degree and I have that degree and look at me and I've done this and I've done that. And that's just not the spirit of Paul. And it's not the spirit of Christ. Paul went humbly before these brothers and talked it over with them. And then he had an exhibit with him. Exhibit A, Titus. He says, I want you to meet Titus. Here is a Greek. He is uncircumcised. And listen to him talk. And watch his life. And see what God has done in this man's life. And so Peter and James and John, they look at Titus and they talk to him and they talk to Paul. And if you go down into verse 6, go with me down to verse 6. Paul says, from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. But those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the Jewish people, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the Jewish people worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And so when Peter and when James and when Peter and John, when, when they, who seemed to be pillars, when they perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me that we should go to the Gentiles and they would go to the Jewish people. They say, Paul, we see that God is working in you just as God's working in us among the Jewish people. He's working among you. And so, brother, we are united. We give you the right hand of fellowship. And they went forward together. They only asked us to remember the poor, Paul said. He says, I was very eager to do that. It was humility that led to greater unity in the church. Then there's one more thing in Paul's life, and it's his heroism. He was a hero. Go back to verse 3. <clears throat> so Paul is there. He's talking to Peter, James, and John, and he's got Titus with him. He says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. 
Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Brothers and sisters, that is a phrase that should be emblazoned upon our hearts. We did not yield even for one moment so that you might have the truth of the good news. They tried to downshift the movement of the Spirit into second gear. And Paul said, get your hands off that stick shift. You are not downshifting. In fact, I'm taking it from fourth gear into overdrive. I'm going into fifth gear. And here we go. And here we are today because of what that man did. And it wasn't easy. He stood alone against not just one other person, but there was a whole team of them. There was a whole group of them. And Paul would not budge so that the truth of the gospel might remain and might keep on spreading and come to us. And what is the truth of the gospel? Again, the truth of the gospel is this. Come as you are. There are no requirements for coming into the kingdom of God, except that you just humble yourself and say, I'm a needy man. I am a needy woman. I need your grace. I come with all my problems. I come with all of my mistakes. Have mercy upon me. And God's word to you is, yes, I will. Come into my family. No strings attached. I accept you fully because of what Jesus has done. And now I will train you to walk with me and to have a new life. That's the truth of the gospel. My prayer is that all of us would be heroes like Paul. Maybe not missionaries, maybe not going around here and there to so many different places, but that all of us, in whatever circumstances we are, that we would be heroes. Maybe it's with the neighbor across the street. Maybe it's with the person next to us. Maybe somebody at work where we would humbly and, and gently and kindly stand for what is true. See, back then, they were trying to impose structures that, were, that would just squelch the gospel. Today, our challenge is very different. How many of you have seen this bumper sticker? seen it many times and you know i have a i have a love hate relationship with this bumper sticker i mean i agree you don't come try to kill me i'm not going to go try to kill you let's indeed let's coexist and let's be friends and let's and let's love each other and let's learn together that is true that is good that is right but the time in which we live is such that multitudes, millions, are going way beyond that. And they're saying, you can't share your opinion because it hurts my feelings or it offends me. Or when you say that, it's hate language. Have you ever heard that? That's, that's the big thing today. It's hate language. So if I say, look, you know, I, I, 
I love you guys. I'm, I'm glad to spend some time with you, but I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. That's hate language. No, it's not. No, it's not. And so we have to stand for the truth of God's word. If people say, and, and, and by the way, so we see, we see uh, Islam and we see the symbol of old washed out, washed out hippies. That's all that that is, that second one, who just can't forget, forget about the 60s, <clears throat> the peace symbol. I, f- I forget what the third one is. And then and in Judaism, the, the I there is the symbol for witchcraft. And then the, yes, that's the yin and the yang. That's Eastern religion. And then, of course, the T is the cross. And there's another one, there's another version of this where in addition to the symbol for witchcraft, there is a symbol for paganism. And okay, if my next-door neighbor is a pagan, he's still my neighbor, I'm still going to love him. But we have to stand for the truth, which is this. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that is the challenge of our time in the United States. To hold on to the truth of the gospel humbly and kindly and gently. But hold on to it firmly and not to be afraid to stand up for it and to tell others that this is the truth. That was a heavenly amen. Sometimes we have to do it. My wife and I have had to do it recently. We just within the past week had to send a letter to someone that we love. A letter to someone who's pretending to be in the faith. And we had to very firmly, but with love, say, no, you're not. Quit saying our Lord. He's not your Lord. You have created a God in your own image. And it's very different than the true God. We've had to take that stand with this person as we continue to love them and continue to reach out. And God may call all of us, and I pray that all of us will have the wisdom and the courage to be a bright light in this world that desperately needs to hear the gospel and that needs that bright light. So will you commit to that with me? Will you be that person like Paul we say, God, make me a hero. Help, help me to learn what it is to, to stand for you. And help me to do it humbly. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your amazing grace to Paul and how you worked in his life and just the incredible, amazing things that you did through him and how it changed the world. And we thank you that that truth of the gospel has come as far as us. Today, as we come to the table, we pray that we would come with new appreciation for what your son has done for us. And not only new appreciation, but new determination to let your spirit work in our lives and to grow us and to use us to proclaim your good news to the world. And we ask for this grace and this mercy in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.